TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. And welcome back to Hardline here on WBEN 803-0930 is the number to call. And that's the same number to text 716-803-0930 for the Volkswagen of Orchard Park text board. And uh, we are really happy to, to talk about what's happening in Western New York from all corners of our region. Next up, we have Supervisor Brian Kalpa from the town of Amherst. Good morning, Brian. Is Brian there, Scott? Brenda, it seems uh, Brian has dropped off, but we just got Amherst Town Supervisor Brian Culpa back. Brian, good morning. Oh, great. Good morning, my friend. <laughs> Sorry about that. I disconnected like twice. No problem, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, things have been busy, certainly, <laughs> in the town of Amherst, as always. Uh, tell us uh, the latest happenings between uh, the town and what happened with the board is it approved the Westwood agreement with Mensch Capital Partners, uh, certainly more commonly known as the Westwood and Audubon Golf Project. What's the latest on that? Well, to start with, um, we didn't um, we did not approve an agreement. What we approved is a term, the terms of an agreement. So it was like the the base outline for the final sale agreement. We did not. Um, we have a little ways to go before we can get to a sales agreement. But the the progress is basically, you know, we've uh, we've reached an agreement about the value of land and the value at land at, at Westwood, the value of land at Audubon, and basic principles by how an agreement would be formed. So it's kind of exciting. I mean, we're answering a decade-old question about what should happen with Westwood. So this proposal, then, Brian, will dictate uh, the sale of, what is it, about 38 acres of the uh, Audubon Recreational Complex from the town to Mensch Capital Partners? Yeah, so in the agreement, um, basically, the, the town is proposing to purchase 170 acres of Westwood, and that'll be in a clean condition. And then we're proposing to sell 38 acres of Audubon and Northtown to Mensch, of which we end up basically buying eight acres back after we have a field house uh, built on it. So when would you see uh, this come to fruition? How, how long of a process do you anticipate? For the transfer or the construction? The, uh, trans- well, actually both. Yeah, so the transfer is going to take a little time. Um, the, the first step we have to do is is reach an agreement on a sales agreement. So we have to go through final sort of sets of, of estimates on construction and cleanup. And, and so that'll take about a month um, before we could get to that point. Uh, then it's really on Mensch to clean up Westwood. Uh, and so that's going to require a DEC permit. And then I'm hoping that they can start that this summer. 
but I mean, we're talking about decades of development. And, you know, it's nothing's nothing's rushed. So uh, the important thing for people to know about this summer is that you know the kind of current conditions of an Audubon are going to remain. Um, Audubon golf course and driving range and the par three are going to be uh, functioning kind of as they have uh, without any changes. And uh, Duval is still going to be playing baseball um, at uh, at the North Town Complex and softball is going to remain at the North Town Complex. So as we're kind of working out what kind of temporary conditions softball is going to have, um, ultimately you know, we need to keep all of their diamonds in play and, and make sure that they have enough diamonds to run all their tournaments. So um, so not a ton of change right out of the gate. The biggest thing is, um, you know, the the sort of what happens on paper. So now talking about off of Maple there, you've got the, the golf. You said they'll have that this summer. Can we expect to see golf continue over the next couple of summers, or might this be the last uh, summer to get golf in on that particular course? So golf is always going to remain in some fashion. Um, we know we're going to be improving the par three. We know Audubon's going to operate um, in some manner. We we think that for the next couple of years it's probably just going to be 18, um, as we've traditionally seen it. But you know, um, we've heard, hey, let's uh, let's make it a more compact 18. We've heard make it um, a 12 with uh, with loops. Um, so that people basically play three whole loops. Uh, we've heard make it nine with alternating um, T locations, so you can play it 18 effectively. Uh, we've also, as a town, committed to having 18 holes. So we're going to have an 18-hole municipal course if it's on this site or if it's up at Oakwood or wherever. Um, that that remains to be seen. Uh, Brian, I know there was some um, protesting done outside of Town Hall um, about the um, the park development proposal, and it seemed that a lot of people felt that uh, there just wasn't enough information disclosed about the finances. So what do you say to that? It was a little disingenuous because it was really a press conference called by two people who wanted to run for Republican council seats and the person who wants to run against me for supervisor and they decided to call that press conference and schedule it as a quote-unquote protest. So there were a couple of residents there who, who I don't know to be partisan, but most of it was just kind of a political election year thing. And that's sort of unfortunate. But I guess that party in the town of Amherst really wants to run against the idea of building a park and of doing this project and um, and of solving the Westwood question and of seeing $200 million in new private sector investment. So that's what they chose to do. Um, I'm not going to leave it at that. Okay. Do you have any comment on, uh, on Mensch, you know, how they were, they were chosen? Well, Mensch owns Westwood. So there's no, I mean, <laughs> they have the 170 acres of land that we want. And so as, Mench started negotiating with us. Originally, you know, they wanted all of Audubon, and that was too much for us as a town board. So as we started to look at land and land value, we basically said, you know, hey, there's there's things that as developers they do well, um, and construction's one of those things. So why not take the value 
from the construction of the park as the construction manager, not as a contractor, but as the construction manager, and that offset, you know, the the perceived value loss that they were going to have, you know, from from their standpoint and and not being able to do a full blown development of Westwood. And, um, we started to talk about them basically being a partner, the town being a client, and that changed the entire direction of the conversation. Yeah, Brian, can you just uh, in a little more detail explain exactly what Mensch is going to do? So you're going to originally sell them a plot of land, and they are going to build something for the town to buy back? So Mensch has got three things. Um, first, Mensch is a collective group of developers and in, in land interest. Um, there's a lot of different players there. But um, the the base components are they're going to develop 30 acres of Audubon with new private development, which is good for us because that private development in about 10 years' time, that, that $200 million of development that they talk about, that throws off about $80 million over 10 years. So over the course of two decades, that throws off significant money Um with escalation, it throws off almost to the tune of you know 180 million. So for us, we need some development by which to pay for the rest of the park, and that that tax is going to be captured to pay for the park. The second part is they're going to basically build the field house. We've been talking about a field house with all three of the school districts wanting one with uh, Damon College wanting one, with UB needing a place for indoor track uh, to practice track and stuff inside. So we said, look, we, we want to build a field house, but the town of Amherst, you know, a field house is a, it's kind of a big extracurricular endeavor to try to take on. So as part of this, we said, you know, we'll sell you the land. You've got to build the field house to our specifications, and basically we'll buy that land back. Um, so it's still going to remain town land. And then the, the, the third big part of it um, that, you know, people got a little bit confused about early on was what it means to have them as a construction manager. So in every capital project, whether it's a school or a town project or a big city project or something, you have three different types of consultants. You have architects and engineers um, who design and who have construction administrative capacity. Um, but they're there basically to tell you, here's what we meant when we designed it this way. Then you've got a construction manager or a clerk of the works. In this case, that would be one of the Mensch affiliates would be the construction manager for different projects. And then there's contractors who you bid the work to. And the construction manager's, manager's job is basically um, to act as a owner's representative to make sure that the quality of construction is happening the way the owner wants, that the specifications are being followed by the contractor. They oversee the day-to-days to to make sure the contractors are doing what they said they were going to do in their bid. So they're going to be functional as a construction manager for some of our town projects, including the musical fair box that we were going to build um, at Westwood. and basically any big project. So if we if we have a project over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of work, the town's not really set up to construction manage that. We don't have construction managers in house. 
So we would be looking for them to act as construction manager in those cases. Will the field house for the town um, be somewhat similar to the one we just saw built at UB, or will this be a different type of field house? So UB's really built theirs around football, and football has a higher roof because of the punt. Um, and if you if you looked at um, Murchie Fieldhouse, it's a great fieldhouse building, but it's really it's just a football field. Um, there's no there there's no indoor track facility. So this will have a lower ceiling. Um, it's built being built around indoor track and soccer, um, you know, type of things. But I mean, it'll be functional for a lot of that but we're not going to be looking for people to try to punt um and and kick field goals so the 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 football aspect won't be there it's a different it's a different use function brian you know you hear the word transparency uh bandied about quite a bit when it comes to anything related to the political world and uh, you know there's some talk that the renderings were not uh were not suitable that there were just not enough drawings for people to understand where the layout of all these uh, new projects would uh, fit. Do you feel like there is enough uh, transparency and disclosure about how things will look once it does finally come to fruition? So that's the thing. Everybody thinks that, like, you have to, we should race forward and show people exactly what's going to be where. We're not done drawing and designing. We're talking about basic terms. We're talking about land value right now. Um, So... The drawings that are you've seen, which were done by Dover Cole back in uh, June, July, you know that was a more recent set of drawings. It was touched up a little bit in December, I think, is the most recent set. The reality is, until we know we have a sale agreement, neither party is going to put a lot of time into artist renderings and drawings. We we got to make sure we get it correct first. Um, so you know the transparency thing is is something that that people get abusive of the the terminology. So we basically I've counted had 90 meetings with resident groups and the public uh, community. You know, 10 community meetings a year in different communities plus big meetings. We've been talking about this in the press. Um, we've been putting stuff on our board agendas. You could have argued we didn't even need to put this most recent thing on our board agenda. We're doing that to continue to push the conversation out there publicly about what we're doing. Um, we've got a committee. The committee meets. You know, it's a public meeting. Um, there, it's a it, the rec commission meets publicly. I mean, there, there's not a, a sort of. I don't want to hide it. We're pretty proud of where we are, and we want to continue to tell the story so that as people come up with things, things can evolve. I've gotten a lot of questions about golf this week from people who were, hey, you know, I didn't see this, and I'd like to uh, talk to you about what 12 holes look like and how modern, you know, 12-hole courses look. I'd like to talk to you about how nine holes could look there if you reverse tee boxes. Um, people have different ideas about what we should do with our 18-hole. Um, we've heard, you know, we, every time we go to a meeting, you know, things change, things evolve, people come up with ideas. And so, you know, that's the the purpose right now isn't to say this is exactly what we're going to build um, because in reality it's like building Delaware Park or or Central Park in New York City. It's a massive undertaking. It's 170 acres just on Westwood. All in, this park is over, you know, 220 acres of land 
and it's not going to evolve overnight. In fact, it's going to take decades for it to evolve. Delaware Park's changed 30 times since Olmstead designed it, probably more. You know, this isn't a race to a finality. Um, This is about continuing the conversation. And, you know, so the 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 lack of transparency question something that I really resent because um, you know it comes up with every time we try to put a meeting together to tell people what's coming oh you haven't been transparent it's like that's why we're doing the meeting and that that's something we got to watch and temper in how we deal with with government um, because it's it's one thing when somebody's intentionally hiding something doing stuff behind the scenes it's another thing. Um, when somebody just doesn't like what they see or they don't like the product, and so they want to hit it with a transparency or process question. In reality, it's not about that. I'm sorry if it doesn't meet everybody's personal goals or personal aspirations. Um, it's not going to. It's a 126,000-person town. Um, and if you talk to a lot of people, I think most people have a general idea of what's happening with Westwood or a pretty good sense about what's coming. Brian, I, I want to say, you know, we've been throwing a lot of numbers around this segment. Uh, next week or in the following weeks, the state is going to uh, pass a budget. And as the supervisor of Amherst, what are you looking for and what effects could a state budget have on the town? Well, the state always hits us with AMAID. Oh, you know, be careful. We could reduce your AMAID. Well, basically, they got rid of the AMAID as we know it, right? So now it's just a scenario where we end up with benefits from sales tax. So we certainly don't want them to tell us they're going to withhold AMAID again because they don't actually write a direct check. Um, But that's something that, you know, we're, we're careful about is making sure that that internet sales tax proceed that we currently receive um, in the form of quote unquote aim, aim replacement um, that 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 isn't touched, um, but that's really not that much money for the town of Amherst. I mean, it's enough to make a difference. But um, at the end of the day, for us, budget-wise, uh, what we're really looking for is to say, look, you know, the there's there's twofold hit people have taken um, with property tax, and now. You know, we're going to see some some pushback the other way. We'll we'll end up giving some money back in the form of property tax. But for me, it's really don't don't gouge the income tax because um, we we know municipalities struggled under COVID. We know people struggle under COVID. We we don't want to see a double hit. So, um, you know, my hope is that uh, the state is going to look at this year as an opportunity to sort of let the dust settle. And, and not get too aggressive with with moving um, too many things forward, um, but you know they've also talked about legalizing recreational use marijuana. Um, if they're going to do that, then we are going to want to see local share because you know, of tax proceed because inevitably that's going to cost us a lot of transformation in terms of how we police and what we deal with in our community. Our code enforcement, everybody's going to have to, to change stream. Um, so we'd be looking for some uh, some revenue sharing uh, with regards to that. Brian, before we wrap, I wanted to get an update uh, from you about a federal grant that you and Congressman Brian Higgins had uh, partnered on. And in our last segment, um, in the 10 o'clock hour, we talked with a parent advocate 
who said how difficult it is for kids who can't go back to school and how drug use is up and emotional problems are, are being ratcheted up among youth. Now, with this grant, it uh, helps prevent substance abuse and educate people about the dangers of substance abuse with uh, alcohol and drugs. How has that helped your community? Have you seen any impact yet? Yeah, well, our programs are up and running, and we had some reports from some of the, the volunteers who are running those programs now that that they're getting um, a lot of attention, especially from parents and uh, people pay, looking for for help. This is uh, this is a mental health crisis beyond just being a pandemic. We've got to really worry about um, how this is affecting all of our youth. And um, so for us, it's it's about taking grants like those, taking um, uh, efforts, whether it's in our opioid court or um, community policing um, and, and working with the school districts to get out there and just tell, you know, people, look, there's places you can go for help offering solutions um, and, and, and trying to get people to, you know, especially the young people to not um, dabble into, you know, to substances as a way to rectify their, their problems. Um, it's not going to be easy. The next couple of years are going to be very, very difficult. Uh, it's going to be difficult on parents. It's going to be difficult on educators and difficult on our community. So now is the time to start making sure we beef up those programs and continue to develop those programs and have them in place because uh, we're all going to be part of a response. Amherst Supervisor Brian Kalpa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, Have a great rest of the weekend. Yes, indeed. You too. Enjoy the sunshine. We'll be back with your calls and comments on the uh, situation with Governor Cuomo. Will he resign Will he be impeached? We'll talk about it with Professor Jacob Nyheisel from the University of Buffalo Political Science Department. Your calls are welcome right after this. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Got clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on and podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. If your day sounds like... We need the report ASAP. You deserve Modelo. If you've persevered through... You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp but refreshing taste. Or if you overcame. Two more reps, two more. You deserve this ice cold reward. Modelo, the Markable Fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you for 25 more minutes. And then we pass it over to Meet the Press starting at noon here on WBEN. Joining us for the final segment, a friend of the show that we have not spoken to in a few months, our good friend Jacob Nyheisel from UB's Department of Political Science. Professor, good morning. 
Morning, Joe and Brenda. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been a far, far too long. And obviously, we have to start with what's going on here in New York State. And that is Governor, and I almost said Governor Chris Cuomo. That's how much CNN I've been watching lately. Um, (laughs) Governor Andrew Cuomo, and now this proposed impeachment. Now, Jacob, I, I, I don't know. We saw a presidential impeachment go through twice in the last year, and if you're older than 25, you've seen three. Uh, <laughs> has a governor in this state been impeached before? Yes, it was 1913. Um, I'm blanking right now off the top of my head on the, the name of the governor, but um, I think most historians will point to the fact that his, his chief crime was crossing the uh, machine, <laughs> party machine in New York City. The, the then tweed ring. Um, and so I, I think that that, uh, you know, probably were other things involved as well. But uh, that was our, as far as I know, first knownly impeachment of a governor in New York State. Well, I went to the University of Google, uh, Jacob. It's William Salzer. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a trivia answer for you. Um, that was the governor who was impeached in 1913. I'd like to think that I don't go to the University of Google more often than I than I do, but uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, a Wikipedia sage at times as well. So <laughs> yes, yes. What would we? Do? I can't imagine life without that now that we're so used to it. Uh, so I'm sure you and Joe probably saw this uh, last night. There were pictures of uh, Governor Cuomo walking around with what appeared to be a blanket around him and talking on the phone. He had a bottle in his hand. Uh, this guy looks like uh, he realizes he's in some very, very deep, deep, uh, troubled waters. Uh, if you had a prediction, Jacob, do you think he'll be impeached or will he resign or will he, as he says, not resign and continue to represent uh, the people of the state of New York? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I'm not very good at prognosticating these kinds of things. Um, you know, I don't think we've seen much in the way of an indication from the governor that his personality is one in which he caves to pressure, um, even tremendous pressure from within his own party to do something like resign. So I would say that an impeachment is more likely than a resignation. Um, but an impeachment is still you know, something that's going to be difficult. Um, you know, I think it's made more likely, um, was it this Friday, this Thursday, when we saw the, the Speaker of the Assembly um, put together a committee to, to start investigating an impeachment. And you know, what I take from that is that, you know, party leadership doesn't usually get out ahead of membership. Usually they have a pretty good sense that membership is with them. And so when I see something like that, I think that there's at least a fair amount of political will among Democrats to, to consider an impeachment. Um, so at this stage, I think an impeachment is more likely than a resignation, but neither um, is, is perhaps terribly likely, um, at least not just yet. You know, Jacob, we, we during the week we've been talking about PR and the governor's PR and making speeches, not making speeches. How does PR in politics usually play out? I mean, after a while, it doesn't matter how good or bad the optics are. If the evidence is there, if something's there, the, the PR is kind of thrown out the window in politics, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And you know, I've, I've often thought of this as, you know, the, the real world intrudes upon politics in a way that isn't ignorable anymore. You know, there are lots of information shortfalls among voters. They're not paying a ton of attention on average. You know, not everyone's political junkies like everyone here on this call. 
Um, and many times <laughs> people have these sort of blocks put up to resistant information, right? Like they like their person, they're not going to hear anything that is negative about that person. But at a certain point, the world intrudes and it's no longer ignorable that there is a, a conclusion to be made. And I think that that's something that the, the governor is seeing. He would love for this to be done with a you know a week's worth of news cycles. I don't think that's going to be the case. Have you now? You, we talked about you know members of his party, and we're talking prominent members of his party, telling him to resign. Now, I thought just a year ago you saw a political party turn on an elected official uh, with, with President Donald Trump, but it seems to be a lot louder with Governor Andrew Cuomo. And you know, we talk about being more polarized uh, now than ever before. Can you think of a politician in the past? whose party has turned on on them as quickly as the party has turned on Governor Andrew Cuomo? Um, you know, I think a lot of comparisons have been made to, to Al Franken. Um, and uh, you know, he was someone who was you know, lauded for a variety of things. And then uh, the, the scandal broke and you know, he was out. Um, it feels like much sooner than, than this has uh, you know, taken to transpire. So, um, you know, I think there are some fairly recent parallels. Um, but then there's also parallels to scandals that didn't net in a resignation or an impeachment or otherwise removal of a governor. I'm thinking of uh, Ralph, Ralph Northam in Virginia. So, you know, I guess there are several models that we can look for um, going forward. Um, you know, the, the thing that makes me think that there might actually be an impeachment eventually is that there's very little political downside here for Democrats to get rid of Andrew Cuomo. If you're in the progressive caucus, the progressive wing of the party, there's actually an upside to that, and that's the person who replaces Cuomo is certainly not likely to be a Republican. They're probably more likely than not to be a somewhat more liberal, somewhat more progressive Democrat. And so for those types of folks, um, this isn't necessarily a bad thing to go through. Now, I'm asking for your personal opinion here. When you look at a Ralph Northam situation, do you think that he survived that because it is a uh, it's a, an office he holds that he cannot run for reelection? Do you think that played into him not getting removed? I think that's part of it. I also think that part of it is you know it was pretty long time ago, although that didn't save Al Franken, um, and it wasn't connected to the office, so to speak, right? It wasn't something he was accused of doing while in office. And I think that that's what makes uh, the case with Andrew Cuomo and the accusations there somewhat more difficult to, to get around. Jacob, if uh, if Cuomo does indeed resign or get impeached, uh, Kathy Hochul then becomes the governor of New York, and she has kept a very low profile. I think, you know, the last time I saw her, she was getting the vaccine uh, she was talking about wearing masks, all very kind of vanilla comments, nothing to do mm-hmm. with what everybody else is talking about here. Uh, do you think that's just uh, her way of trying to walk that very fine line between being loyal to Cuomo and and also as a woman in particular, uh, trying not to say anything inflammatory about these allegations? I think that's uh, probably the the best way to look at it, you know, she's in an impossible situation. <laughs> um, you know, the, the person with whom she shared a, a ticket the, the last time around, um, you know, the, the person who is, uh, you know, leading the state and she's the, the, you know, Lieutenant governor is being accused of some, you know, fairly, um, um, disturbing things. And depending on how this goes, it could make for a very difficult 
final year serving in, in that position um, if he doesn't go, right? And so she comes out really, really hard saying, you know, we need to investigate this, we need to, to really look at this, or even outright calls for resignation. That's politically very risky for her. So it, it's, it's an almost impossible situation, I think. And she's really known as a tireless campaigner. I remember when she ran for Erie County clerk and then when she had that brief stint in Congress, um, mm-hmm. she just campaigns all the time, crisscrossing the state, crisscrossing the, uh, the counties of Western New York. What do you think the perception of her is just that she's kind of this unknown entity because she's from Buffalo and not downstate? I think she is largely unknown. So, I mean, she's obviously known in the, the area. Uh, Western New York, but I don't think that downstate has has much in the way of a an idea or knows what to make of her. And I think that some of the more recent polling has really kind of borne that out. There's just sort of a we don't really know who she is kind of sense downstate. And um, you know, obviously that would be a difficult hurdle for her if she wanted to, you know, seek the nomination um, if Cuomo were to to resign or be impeached. Now, it made big news when uh, Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand called on Cuomo to resign. Do you think that Joe Biden will call on him to resign? It's a great question. Um, I, I, the short answer is I don't know. Um, you know, he's in a very difficult situation, too. Here's someone he has you know, lauded as um, doing well throughout the pandemic, which, of course, has also come into question um, in the, the, the recent weeks. Um, but then is accused of some, some pretty terrible stuff. So I, it's a fine line for the president to walk as well. And but, I, but, you know, Jacob, I, presidents, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, do you think he could just say, well, I'm, I'm president. I don't really want to comment on things like this. And he can sort of use his office as a shield against the need to comment on that. I think that's probably the, the most likely approach we're going to see. We are just kind of shades of that from his press secretary. You know, not going to talk about it. That's, that's sort of something that should be looked at elsewhere. Um, and I was going to say that traditionally uh, presidents don't really involve themselves in matters of the state. Um, the Trump, of course, would make comments about blue state governors and things like that. But traditionally it was very odd for um, a president to, to be involved in any level at choosing the leaders of a state or, you know, campaigning for or against someone. And you know, I'm reminded of in the, the late 1930s when FDR did that, and this was for federal positions for senators, um, there was a huge backlash against that because it was seen as kind of an overreach into the states, and the states are their own thing. president does his own thing. Now, Professor, you know when we have you on, I like to compare what's going on now and, and look for a similarity sometime in the past of, of American politics. And you now have, on a national level, two parties that themselves are very divided, right? Uh, this is the most divisive I can remember um, in covering politics as closely as I do now. Um, but then within those parties, you have divisions. You have you have Democrats, and then you have far-left progressives. You have Republicans, and then you have Lincoln Project Republicans. And then you have people in the middle of Trump Republicans and Lincoln Project Republicans. Um, you know, and it seems like there's parties within parties. Do you think, looking back, there is an, an opportunity here where we are going to see more parties form, or we are going to see what we now consider third parties move into major parties? That's a great question. And, you know, it's not something that hasn't happened in American history. It absolutely has. I mean, 
Um, and you actually see some vestiges of that to this day. So if you're a Democrat in Minnesota, you're not a Democrat. You're a DFL, Democratic Farmer Labor. Farmer and Labor were third parties that were kind of absorbed into the Democratic Party because they were effectively stealing votes, you know, making a pitch for the electorate. And so we have seen several time periods in American history, um, really kind of the, going back to the beginning, where you see divisions in a party that are no longer sustainable, such that the major parties have to do something. Either they split, which was the Whig Party, you know, the Republicans split from the Whigs in the 1850s, 1860s, um, or they do some kind of other posturing and otherwise deal with the external or internal threats. Um, and so we've seen various ways that this could go. Um, you know, party splits, outright party splits are very rare, uh, but they do happen. And, you know, I'm not willing to say, God on limb, that these are the conditions that would make them. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's certainly not something that's impossible. Now, would, you, would a party split make us more divided or start unifying the country? That's a great question. Um, you know, um, parties tend to be, at least in a, a two-party system like the United States, tend to be kind of big tents, right? They, they bring people in and they kind of smooth over some of those differences. And when you have, you know, an outright party split, such as, you know, you know one party breaking off from another, then you don't really have that impetus to get along on anything. And so it could be the case that, you know, there's a, an issue where things get even more divisive. Um, that being said, we tend to look at multi-party systems as sort of more closely hewing to the, you know, the voters, you know, multi-party coupled with some changes to maybe how the legislature is run. But, you know, if you want the, the socialist line, well, there's a party for you. You don't have to kind of hold your nose and support mainstream Democrats because there are also some things that get closer to what you want, you know, wrapped up in that for you. So eh, there are positives and negatives on either side, um, but it's certainly not a recipe for some kind of, you know, coming together and, and soothing out the differences. Uh, Jacob, as Joe had mentioned, it's uh, it's been a minute since we talked to you on the show, and uh, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the Biden administration early on here as uh, Joe Biden took office just a couple of months ago. Uh, what is your view about how he's responding to the border crisis? You know, uh, it was said that Ron DeSantis was slamming him for his border policy, saying that President Trump had it right, and others uh, down along the southern border are saying, you got to keep that border shut. But Biden is talking about reuniting people with uh, their children. Others are saying it's it's bringing an influx of COVID into the U.S. with people pouring over the border. It's a, a very uh, tough decision, a tough situation. How do you think uh, Biden is handling it thus far? You know, that's a great question. It's his first kind of real test that we've seen. And it's because he's really taking flack from everywhere. Um, obviously, you have people on the right saying that Trump had the right policy. You need to be less forgiving. You need to send signals that, you know, you can't come here illegally. And then you have people on the, the left who look at things like, you know, there's still some measure of children being separated from the adults that accompany them across the border and going, what are you doing? We, we thought this was going to be different. And it's uh, I'm not going to say it's an impossible situation, but it's a very difficult situation, um, provided that the underlying policies haven't changed. You know, unless he's able to convince Congress to change the rules surrounding asylum or get Congress to, to change the rules surrounding, you know, what it takes to, to come into the country, 
um, it, it's going to continue to be a problem for him. The other thing that's really been uh, quite prominent in the news this week is the uh, one-year anniversary of Breonna Taylor's uh, shooting. And I know that uh, riots have broken out, especially uh, along the, the many cities along the West Coast, L.A., Portland, Seattle. When you're teaching, um, how often does the civil discourse come up, the Black Lives Matter, the, the problems with uh, you know, the way police are perceived and brutality happening uh, across many cities, along with the start of the George Floyd uh, trial where Derek Chauvin is on trial for his murder. Uh, what, are, what do your students say, Jacob? I'd be curious to know what political science students have to say about these happenings around the country. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I've taught sort of more specialized courses since those things um, happened over, over the summer. So um, it's not clear that really a lot of opportunities would come up to, to broach those issues. Um, you know, I think that they're seen as kind of a broader suite of problems surrounding inequality. I taught a course on environmental politics, and we talk about environmental justice. And of course, it kind of comes up along with, well, yeah, having factories located toward minority or poor areas is of the same kind of inequality as we're seeing in policing and law enforcement in general. So I think that those are the kinds of connections that students have have made. Uh, But I haven't taught, you know, my large intro section since those things happened, which is where we tend to have the kind of American politics writ large conversations. And so very interesting to see uh, in the fall uh, what my students are thinking. You know, Jacob, you went right into my next question. Uh, we've been now in this pandemic for a year. What's it been like teaching college courses, teaching on campus via Zoom, a mixture of both? What's the last year been like uh, on campus for you? So I have not been on campus in the last year. I, I have been online only and you know, I've taught online in the past. It's a distant past, and it wasn't a problem. But I think um, it is not my preferred format. Let's just say that. I, I really like being in front of the classroom. I really like the face-to-face engagement. Um, that's what gets me really excited about teaching, not kind of speaking into a camera with either lots of dark screens um, because they're not turning their cameras on or speaking into the camera you know, to record a lecture, and it's just me and my screen. So I, that's it, it's taken a bit of the fun out. I hate to say, you know, your job probably shouldn't be fun or doesn't need to be fun, right? You need to do your job. But it, it has taken certain measures of the, the, the enjoyment that I get out of teaching out of it. And I'm really looking forward to going back in person, which I think is going to happen in the fall. Well, Jacob, I always say that you always are supposed to have fun. Some would argue I have too much fun and not as much professionalism, but we'll just let critics be critics. No, I think you have a good time, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what makes that's what makes it's, uh, you know passable sometimes. It it should be fun, right? Just think about how much time we devote to work in our lives. And uh, Joe, I'm with you. Got to get your work done, but you got to have fun too. Got it. it makes work a lot more palatable. Got to have fun, and always a fun time talking with you, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope it's not as far until we talk to you again. Likewise. My pleasure and anytime. Happy to do it. Thank you. Professor Jacob Nyheisel from the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo. And Brenda, that will wrap up another edition of Hardline here on WBEN. 
And if you missed any of our interviews, it'll be available on the podcast at radio.com. If you want to go back and listen and uh, catch some of the other uh, folks that we talked to, we had a very busy show as usual. And it's also on the radio.com app. So if you're in the car and you've missed the first hour or say you you just tuned in now and uh, you know, you're running a little behind because of that loss of an hour, get in the car, go on the app and uh, the on demand will be there in mere minutes. And I would like to remind everyone that starting tomorrow at 7 a.m., the WBEN Spring Stimulus is back. Your chance at $1,000 every top of the hour between 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. Listen for that code word, and when you get it, text it to 72881 for your chance at $1,000. It's the WBEN Spring Stimulus back up tomorrow at 7 a.m. It'll put some fun in your workday, Joe. Uh, $1,000 sure will. (laughs) Looking forward to next week, same time here on Hardline, 10 a.m. until noon. Brenda Alacy, Joe Beamer, enjoy the week, folks. Thanks for tuning in.